Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the great things that you have done for us simply because you love us. And I ask, Father God, that the words this morning would be of you and not of me. Holy Spirit, transform us into the image of the Son of God. Help us, Father God, as your people to glorify you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen. Children, you are dismissed. This morning we're in our third message in our series of Summer Psalms. I may need lots of water here. There are 150 psalms in, in our Bible. And most scholars believe that they were written by more than seven authors. Forty-eight of the psalms don't have a, a, a name associated with them, so we don't have a, a clear indication of, of who wrote them. Most of the time we think of David when we think of psalms, and that's appropriate because he, he may have written 75. I, I saw this week there's, a, there's some varieties. One, one source said 72, one source said 78. So right in the middle there, 75 seems to be pretty, pretty good. Asaph is credited with 12. Korah, um, that name is associated with 11, 11 of them, and that may actually be a family name, Korah, of, of a Levite family. Solomon is associated with um, a psalm, as are Moses, Ethan, and Heman. Those are minor contributors. So we have a, a span of, of writers that God used, and there's quite a bit of time involved as well. Today's psalm is Psalms 25, or 24, getting ahead of myself, Psalms 24, and it is associated with David. It says, a psalm of David, and that's actually in the Hebrew. So some of the places we know who the author is, because it's actually recorded in Scripture for us. This is one of those. Let's begin with verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This starts with very much the same kind of idea that we we saw last week. David makes a statement about God's sovereignty, and he, he states that sovereignty using creation. There are numerous passages and great passages in the book of Job, that describe God's sovereignty. And in this, in this psalm in particular, David's idea isn't so much that we go into creation as it is that we get a grasp of his sovereignty. And I love the book of Job in many, many ways, especially the last chapters, because there are these huge statements that the Lord makes concerning his sovereignty. Here's, here's one of my favorites. This is Job 38, 1 through 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for me like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and be no, and, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Job goes on, and there's more than just that passage about the sovereignty of God. Powerful statements of who God is in His sovereignty. This idea of the sovereignty of God is important because the sovereignty of God actually influences our lives every day. Understanding God's sovereignty gives us worry. For example, that's how God influences. That's that's how God works with us in His sovereignty. As believers, we do not worry because He loves us. And in His love for us, He has the ultimate ability to care for us. Because God is sovereign, believers can live a life that's based on Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God God works in us and, and for us. In His sovereignty, God influences how believers make decisions. I I know this because of what Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. This is my position in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. God influences us as His children, as His people. And even if we make wrong decisions, God guides us back as His people to a course that is best for us. We see God's sovereignty in troubled times. As believers, we can can look at the troubles in our world and we can have an internal peace no matter what happens around us because our sovereign God has all of the world's governments and cultures under His ultimate plan and control. They all exist for Him. It's a part of His greater plan. We may not ever see that greater plan in this life, but it's there. In Daniel, we read this, 2.21, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is sovereign over every king and nation. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah about His sovereignty. Isaiah 46.9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is in control. That's a good place to be. Going back to Psalms 24, 
with this idea of God's sovereignty, David then writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He gives us two questions. And in those questions, the first imagery he uses is the hill of the Lord, which is imagery of going up to a, to a high place to find God. And it's very possible David was referring to Mount Zion in Jerusalem as the hill of the Lord because that's where the temple was. That's where God was. Ascending the hill of the Lord, that's, we, we also look up because, because God sits on the throne of heaven. Going up the hill of the Lord and standing in his holy place means to be in God's presence. In God's presence. Psalm 16, verse 11 tells us, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no better place than to be in the presence of God. There's no more glorious, amazing place than to be right there in the presence of the creator of the universe. But as David continues, he he presents a problem because he says, who is worthy? Who's clean enough and righteous enough to stand before God? The problem's very obvious, if we're honest. No one can stand before God. No human is capable of doing that. This is something that Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And Paul writes a familiar verse to us in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All there, by the way, means all, so you don't escape. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That is our condition. He asks that question, who can stand? And in his answer, we see this problem. Because the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's the answer. But it's the, the question, the, the problem is still there. It kind of contributes to the problem. Because how, how, can we, how can we as sinful humans, how can we have a, a pure heart? How can we be clean? How how do we live and and not lift up our souls to what is false when our basic human nature is sinful, rebellious, and wicked? The The only answer is God has to intervene. The answer is what God has done through the sacrificial death of Jesus and His glorious resurrection. The answer is the gospel and the transformed life provided By the blood of Jesus. Jesus teaches us that the only way into God's presence is through Him. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Hebrews 9, 14, the author of Hebrews says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The only way we're ever going to be in the presence of God is through Jesus and the work of Christ. Most of us are believers, okay, but this is a reminder, and I think we need this kind of reminder. And one of the reasons I think that we need that reminder is because we have that reminder all through Scripture. Psalms 15 is a parallel to, to um, Psalms 24. And in verse 2 of Psalms 15, David writes, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And he's speaking of who can come into the presence of God. Walks blamelessly and does what's right. To be in the presence of God means that we need to be righteous. We need to walk in such a way that, that we are permissible in God's presence. We cannot come into God's presence in our filth and wickedness of our sinful nature. We must be right with God. There, there, there has to be a God level of righteousness. And we need to be clean then in all that we do. Well, that's all good, but that just brings us back to the same problem. It's a sin problem. So how do we, any human being, enter into God's holy place? God in His grace provides the only answer to the problem, and that is through Christ. His sacrificial death and His resurrection. Our faith in Christ is the only thing that qualifies us to enter into God's presence. This is because God's this is because Christ's righteousness has been given to us. So, so now, this is all kind of a reminder. Now we're, we're going to have a little bit of a theological lesson. Some theology here. And it's good for us. The term for this righteousness being given to us is imputed. Imputed righteousness. Imputed is a legal and financial term. And it means, it means to credit to another person's account. Impute is actually used in, in a couple of different ways in Scripture. There's three of them that's, that's very important that we're going to look at. And they're all related. One way imputed is used is that Adam's sin is credited to us. It's inherited by us. All humans are sinful because Adam's sin is imputed to all humans. Paul teaches this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So our, our sinfulness is imputed to us. Another way that we use imputed is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to those who believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. Wow. Now, now I'm going to throw in the third way that we use this because it's, it's related. They, they kind of are intertwined. Imputed is also used to describe our sins as being placed 
on Christ into his account. They're imputed to him. That's astonishing. This idea of imputed righteousness is taught in Psalms 32.1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are forgiven, whose sin is covered. And, and Paul probably gives us the key verse about imputed righteousness in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it combines these ideas of, of imputed righteousness. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin... That's one form of imputed, right? Of imputed, that our sins are imputed to Christ, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, His righteousness imputed to us. You see that? Now, imputation then is is fundamental. This is this is the core of salvation. Sinful men and women cannot deal with their sins. God deals with the sin of all men and women by taking their sins on himself through the work of Christ's perfect sacrifice. And then as we saw in that verse, when a person comes to Christ, they are reckoned by God to have the same righteousness as Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that last phrase, we might become the righteousness of God. It's not some special kind of righteousness that's just a human kind of righteousness. This is the righteousness of God. How righteous is God? How righteous is Jesus? We have the same righteousness of Jesus Christ in us as believers. That is amazing. That's how the Father sees us. Whew. Paul gives an example of this fantastic truth. This is something that has always been in place. In Romans chapter 4, Paul's using this truth and he's using Abraham as an example. Romans 4, beginning in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is so astonishing. There's a lot to that. Where this takes us, especially as we put this into the context of our psalm today, in Psalms 24, is is that we have this this righteousness. We have the answer to the question that, that David poses. And it's in Christ. Christ was, Christ is, and Christ will forever be qualified to enter into the Father's presence. Jesus is God. He's with the Father. 
And this is, this is where David then goes in verse 5. This is the blessing. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob. Selah. We need to be reminded, I think, more often of some of the truths of what God has done and how powerful those are and how amazing this truly is for believers. Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And because of that, he perfectly qualifies to be in the, in the Father's presence. Jesus is in the presence of the Father right now. And and in the presence of the Father, he presents believers to the Father and he intercedes for believers. The Son of God is praying for you, interceding for you with the Father if you're a believer. This is something Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I don't know about you, but there's days I need a lot of prayer. Intercession is, is pretty unique prayer, and it's pretty special prayer. I am so thankful that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is praying for me. The Apostle John teaches the same truth. 1 John 2.1 My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate. That's one who's, who's defending you. He's, he's there with the Father. He's interceding for you. He's presenting your case. And what's the case that he presents to the, to the Father about the believer? The accuser says, "Ah, you're a sinner." Picking on the, I'm picking on the guy in the front row. I love people who sit in the front row. <laughs> you're a sinner. And the accuser says that, and our advocate says, "He's one of mine." And the father, the judge says, "Great, I see them as righteous." That is amazing. That is so awesome, and it continues all the time because Jesus has authority to do that. Now let's go back to, to our psalm. In verse 6, there's a word there, and, and sometimes it can be a little bit confusing. The word is generation. This is the generation of those. Some translations might have it a little bit differently, but that's very common. Generation there comes from a Hebrew word that has several different meanings, and the meanings are determined by the context. In this context, here, in in, in Psalm 24, generation has the meaning of race or people, a people group. Those who seek God's face, when David wrote this, he's referring to the Jewish race. Now, by extension, because of the work of Christ, the generation or people would be believers. Those who by faith follow or seek God. Believe, follow. We're seeking God. So that's the generation. That's the race, the people group. And what does that mean uh, to seek Him? To seek God's face. 
that, that means to have, it, it, would, it was a term that was, would be used literally as you're going to have an audience with the king. An audience with the king. Which means you can go in to the very presence of the king and you're going to talk to him. You're going to have face-to-face contact and you're going to communicate directly to the king. You're going to speak with God. This is only possible to those who have believed in the gospel. So if you're here or you're watching and, and, and you're a believer, you have access to the king. You have access to the one who is sovereign over the entire universe. And you can go into his presence and you can converse with him. As David goes on in this psalm, the, the, the last verses, the last four, are, are a repeated refrain. This is a little bit like what we do in our music. David writes, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. In that refrain, lift up from the Hebrew, it means to, it can mean literally lift up. Okay, you know. Lift up. But it also means to take away or remove. And in this context, what David is saying is the gates are open. The gates have, are, are removed. They're wide open. Access has been made to God. It's made available to those who believe. There is nothing hindering us from the king of glory. There is nothing hindering God's people from having access to the king of the universe. The king of glory. Who's the king of glory? Jesus. We have access because of Jesus. We go before the Father. Jesus is there with us. We have access. Now, one of the things that most scholars believe and and, and have seen in history is is the Jews would have used this in several different ceremonies and, and celebrations. And it is very, very much believed that this would have been one of the songs that was sung at the temple on the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem. So, so we, we celebrate Palm Sunday and all that, and we think of him coming in. Well, there's this whole thing going on at that time, this whole celebration is going on. This would have been one of the hymns that they sang that day. But as we know, the celebration of Jesus coming into Jerusalem was short-lived. Because it didn't take long for them to go from Hosanna and celebration to crucify him. Instead of honoring and accepting Jesus as the king of glory, who he was, the Jewish leaders rejected him and stirred up the people against him, and Jesus was crucified. 
But all of that happened in God's sovereignty. Had to happen in God's sovereignty so that we would have access to the King of glory. He was crucified. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, winning the battle against Satan, sin, and death. And giving us access as believers. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he entered heaven as the king of glory. And when Jesus returns, he is going to come as the victorious king of glory. That's going to be fun. Jesus is the sovereign king. David started with that idea and he finishes with that idea. Jesus is sovereign. He's the creator and master of all creation. I want to close this morning with with a passage from Hebrews to help solidify this, this whole idea and help us rejoice in the fact that our God has provided a way for us to have access to Him. The sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have access as believers. Hallelujah. Father, thank you that through the blood of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you have opened the way into your presence. We have access to the King of glory. I thank you that As our high priest, he is in heaven interceding for us, presenting us to the Father. Holy Spirit, I agree with with the author of Hebrews that you would draw us near, that our hearts would be, be full with the assurance of our faith, that our hearts would be sprinkled clean, work in us and through us, as our bodies have been washed by the blood of Jesus. Holy Spirit, use us. Wherever we go, remind us of our position in Christ. Remind us of His sovereignty. Remind us that we have access 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we have access into the kingdom, into the, in the actual throne room of God. Let us live that way. Use us work through us and in us that we would present the King of glory to a world that needs a Savior. Thank you, Father God, for what you've done to give us access into your kingdom. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.